A River to Cross, Chapter 19, Flood of a Lifetime, quote, And rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights, end quote. Genesis, Chapter 7, Verse 12. Several years of heavy snow in the north, an early snow melt in the upper Mississippi Valley, and a record-setting late winter and early spring rainfall led to one of the worst floods ever on the lower Mississippi River. In the spring of 1973, the flooding on the Mississippi and the heavy, heavy spring rainfall contributed to another record flood on the Homochitta River, a flood of epic proportions. It was spring break, and my old roommate, John Smith, and I decided, flood notwithstanding, to float the Homochitta River. The Homochitta has a capacity to lull one into a false sense of security because 90% of the time it is a shallow, slow, lazy river. It is a mistake to think of the Homochitta in that way. In the right or, rather, the wrong circumstances, the mistake can easily become a fatal one. Neither of us owned a boat, so we borrowed a very unique watercraft of sorts, a homemade boat, if you can call it that, from a local farm pond. This vessel was created by someone taking two 1949 Ford truck hoods and welding them together to create a quite strange boat. The Ford truck hoods boat may have been fine for pond work, but it lacked one crucial component for safety and reliable river travel. There was no keel. If you are not a boat person, the keel is the midpoint on the bottom of the boat that helps to stabilize the boat and give it direction, as opposed to going in circles. The finer points of this vessel's shortcomings were lost on us, at least until it was much too late to do anything about it. But we were young, it was spring, and nothing else mattered, right? The lack of safety considerations represented a continuation of a lifelong pattern for me. John loved the outdoors and spent a significant part of his far too short life working in the outdoors, documenting wildflowers and photographing all aspects of nature. I suppose his desire on this trip was to see what the rain-swollen homochitta held in store. I was just looking for the thrill of taking on the homochitta at record flood stage. Regardless of our motives, we decided to float the river, and we weren't put off by little things like no boat, no proper equipment, or any other hindrance that presented itself. It was a bright, sunny day, but cool with a strong west-northwest wind blowing. The boat, as I already noted, was ill-conceived, but our equipping was just as poor, if not more so. As it turns out, the ill-conceived boat was a highlight of our preparation because beyond it we had one paddle, one board about the length of a paddle, and a Remington 22 rifle for snakes. We had no life jackets, no flotation cushions, no rope, no emergency provisions, and no clue as to what we were about to encounter. We were both dressed in jeans, boots, and I think John had on a light jacket. Our put-in spot was adjoining property owned by my family immediately south of the U.S. Highway 98 bridge over the Homochitta. 
On this particular day, the Homa Chitta was quite unladylike, as she was bank to bank, as they say, and moving quite swiftly. With the river that high and swift, when we pushed off, we were all in. There was no turning back, although we could have turned aside to the bank. The Homachita was at flood stage I had seldom, if ever, seen before. It not only covered the entire huge sandbar on the north bank of the river by the 98 bridge, but it had flooded out into the public road we call River Road. Out in the river channel there were logs and whole trees and what looked like islands of Indian soap, a sort of foam, floating down the river in the muddy brown waters of the Homachita on that spring day. When we got well out into the river, two things were immediately and dangerously obvious. John and I had seriously misjudged the power and ferocity of the swollen Homachita, and trying to steer a boat without a keel was futile. The forward boat was continually spinning in complete circles while traveling swiftly downstream. There was no steering this ill-conceived boat, and our lack of planning was turning more disastrous by the moment. All of these dangers went effectively unnoticed due to our optimism and youthful exuberance. I think, in retrospect, John was feeling the danger but sort of talking and laughing it off in classic John Smith fashion. In reality, we didn't have time for fear to get a grip on us because we were moving downstream very rapidly. Besides all that, even if we wanted out, the craziness of our boat and the complete inability to effectively direct it left us with no effective way to extricate ourselves anyway. We were... Well, that's the end of the good news. Before we made it around the first curve, John lost his grip on the only real paddle we had, leaving me with a one-inch by four-inch board about six feet long as the sum total of our marine equipment to paddle our tin lizzie of a boat. In spite of all that, I can still hear our somewhat nervous but dismissive laughter as we plunged into the venture ahead on the now very powerful and loud Homochitta River. I think it was only minutes later that at a deep level in our hearts we were starting to realize, although not admitting it, we had messed up. We were progressing downriver at speeds I had never experienced in all my years of floating the river in tubes and canoes and flatboats. Very shortly, we were at the McGeehee Leonard property line, and I noticed Mr. Clifton Leonard standing on the left-hand riverbank, quietly watching us quickly slide by. He had only a moment to speak, and he said, What are you doing? You boys better get out of that river. I decided to try to follow his suggestion and attempted to use my longboard to reach out and snag a tree protruding from the bank. Not appreciating the force of the current, I couldn't dislodge our last paddle before the river dragged us downstream. Now with no paddle and no hope for even moderately directing our ill-fated vessel, we were totally at the mercy of the current and it didn't appear there was any mercy in store for us. Amazingly, in the way only youngsters, John was almost 21 and I was just past 19, can do, we still weren't overly concerned about the dire gravity of our circumstances.
In fact, I remember us laughing quite a bit at the loss of our last paddle. It may be that the laughing was, at least in part, an effort to cover underlying nerves. We were talking of the snakes we expected to shoot with our twenty-two, which was actually not ours, but my dad's rifle. Since he was at his office, I hadn't actually asked him about taking his rifle on our adventure. Besides, I pretty much knew his answer would be no. Surprisingly, we weren't under the influence of alcohol. I guess we were probably suffering from an overdose of youthful male testosterone that doesn't have enough judgment to see the need for limits. We were quickly approaching the pipeline, a place where Texas Eastern-owned underground natural gas pipeline crosses the Homochitta River. I was sort of hoping that given the way in which the current moved when close to the pipeline, we might be able to hand paddle our way close enough to the bank to grab something solid to pull us to shore. I was hoping we could get out at the pipeline and walk to the road and catch a ride to the truck. I was partly right. We did get out of the boat at the pipeline. We just weren't on the bank when we did it. There was a downriver-leaning snag jutting up out of the swirling muddy waters as we continued our spinning ways, and the snag caught the truck hood boat midship. Without even the slightest warning, we were in the cold, swift water well over our heads, and the boat was sucked under and away, never to be seen by us again. The air may have been reasonably warm, but the water was not. It felt like ice water. On the other hand, I neglected to mention that John was essentially a non-swimmer. On his best day, he had a very weak and questionable dog paddle. Where we went into the river, the water was probably about eight feet deep. The depth was a problem, but the deadly factor was the swiftness of the water. Only by the grace of God, I was able to get to John very quickly before he got in trouble, and I just bear-hugged him from behind and let the current carry us. I knew, or, or rather I hoped, that the flow of the river and the profile of the sandbar at that point would work us toward the left-hand bank on the south side of the river. We managed, again by the grace of God, to hold on until we came to a spot where our feet touched and we were able to get out to the woods and the river's edge. Understandably, we were both scared at this point. John was sort of out of control, scared because he had come so close to drowning. I had an out-of-control feeling too, but mine was much different from John's. My fear didn't have anything to do with what you might think. My overwhelming thought was, oh crap, daddy's rifle is in the river. I was much more afraid of my daddy than the Homochitta. I sent John through the woods downriver to get our takeout vehicle and come back to pick me up. I told him I had to go back to try to get the rifle. John said, man, you're crazy. You'll never find that rifle. I knew he was totally right, but I also knew how deathly afraid I was of telling my daddy I had lost his rifle that I wasn't even supposed to have in the first place. Fear is a powerful motivator. No doubt if my dad were there, he would have wisely told me to forget about the rifle, but he wasn't, and I couldn't see that point. 
What I could see was the confrontation that would of necessity occur when the rifle was discovered to be gone. The years had not dimmed my memory of a previous time when I took one of his guns without permission, and the result was not pretty. I took off my waterlogged boots, stripped down to my underwear, grabbed my stuff, and started up the river bank at a run. I don't know if you've ever ventured along the wooded edge of the Homochitta, but there are trophy briar patches and thorn bushes. I think my bare feet and legs found most of them. I just had to ignore the briars and the thorns and get on the upriver side of that snag that had dumped us in order to be able to swim out and get a hold on that snag. I felt like the odds were extremely long that I could even get to the snag, much less find the rifle, but fear said go, so I had to try. I went into the river at the upper side of the pipeline and angled across the current to fight my way to the snag where our boat had turned over and the rifle went down. The boat was nowhere to be seen. In fact, I never saw that boat again. Good riddance. Hopefully we saved anyone else from ever making the mistake of getting in the river in that boat again. The current was much too strong for me to go against it, so I just allowed the downstream pull and the upstream angle, upstream angle I had taken to land me at the snag. And it did, barely. I grabbed the snag at the last possible moment, and even though the current tried to take me on downriver, I was able to hold on and pull myself in close to the snag. The snag was really a tree in the middle of the river with its base upstream and its top downstream. I knew I couldn't stay there long. I was able to get a firm hold on a limb protruding down from the underside of the tree, so I pushed off the bottom of the snag, forcing myself down in the river. My foot hit bottom. Amazingly, bottom was a slick piece of wood that I knew miraculously was the stock of my daddy's twenty-two rifle, and by some means that I don't understand to this very day, I grabbed it between my feet. Then as the river pushed me downstream, I was eventually able to get my hand on it and held on until I touched bottom at the same approximate location John and I had reached the shallow water before. Amazingly, I made it out with my daddy's Remington 22 rifle. It looked fine, but it was completely clogged with sand. But hey, I had it back, and cleaning it was no problem compared to trying to get it out of the river. It was a true miracle that John and I not only didn't both drown, but also were able to find and recover that rifle. Not drowning that day tells me the following did not apply to me, that there is meaning, and my job is to get busy living out God's meaning and plan for my life. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. 
To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, Look, this is something new. It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verses 1 through 10. The events of that day in the river with John speak mainly to the fact that God had something else for us to do. There was no apparent reason for us to have made it out of there at all. Of course, as has been the case so many times in my life, there was no reason for me to have been there in the first place. There is no place where life is beyond hope, and there is no place in my life or in your life that we reach a bridge too far. God is able, not just able, but ready and willing. When I look back on that day, as well as many others, I am inclined to say, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening, finally. You are not here by chance. God has a purpose for your life and the events of your life. Look up and fix your eyes on him.